Welcome to the show, where my friends and I tell real-world stories of other-world magic. My name is Peyton, and I'm into it. Welcome, everybody. My name is Peyton Turner, and I'm into it. And so is my amazing guest today, uh, my really good friend, Lewis Perkins. Lewis, welcome. Hi, Peyton. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's so good to see you. And so um, Lewis and I actually went to college together in this sleepy little town in the Shenandoah Valley um, uh, and a, a, little, a, a great school called Washington and Lee. And um, we haven't really talked to each other since then. And we have and you are somebody that I just instantly feel connected to when we when we sit and have this conversation. So I love that. I, I love those connections, those spiritual connections like that. I feel the same way. Thank you, Peyton. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this this episode, um, I did things a little bit differently. So I um, normally I save my intuitive reading for you with your permission. I ask your permission first. I save it um, to present to you. Um, for the first time, actually, as we're recording, and we, and that's at the end. But the information um, that I got for you was a little on the personal side. So you and I have discussed that ahead of time. Sure. And um, one of the things that um, that came up during this reading that I did for you, where a past loved one showed up, was um, your your grandfather showed up, and he he wanted um, to he wanted to let you know that the work that you've done. Um, Number one, that the that the trauma you've had in your life and the suffering that you have um, that you have experienced was not your fault. Number one, and number two, that in working through that, you have ended um, ancestral lines of trauma mm-hmm. and abuse. Yeah, and so I mean that's kind of a heavy topic to to start on right out the bat, but it's something that came up, and I think that you and I are both really passionate about that. So, taking a step back a little bit, um, how do you? I hear. I think here's the question I want to uh, um, that I want to ask. What? How do you relate um, trauma and intuition together? What a like, great question. Yeah. 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 Um, did you have something else to add? No, nope, that's okay, it. Okay, great. Well, you know, it's first of all, it's interesting. And in, in just a couple minutes ago, when you and I were talking about trauma and abuse, I thought, you know, there was a time when I would never have applied those words at all to my life or any experience that I had. And in fact, I'll talk a little bit about my, my journey in getting sober. And when I did that, um, the, you know, when you start doing sobriety work, you, you know, you dive into a lot of that stuff. You're like, where did this come from? You know, I haven't, you know, my, my body has a physical allergy, but I also, you know, had things that led me to want to reach for something outside of myself to numb or shift the way that I feel. Mm-hmm. And, and so I had, you know, some ancestral uh, DNA that was going to point me towards this, but I also had uh, some things that occurred in my life that made it um, something that I wanted to reach toward. And I certainly wasn't raised to, uh, in, my, in our household, you know, there was, there was not a lot of cocktailing, there was not a lot of culture and glam- glamorizing, you know, Um, you know, the five o'clock cocktail hour, except perhaps when the family was gathered at our beach house, where Mm -hmm. there was this great feeling of, you know, the adults and the the parents kind of relaxing and and making those cocktails. I can still, if I cut a lime, I can still kind of smell and think about the grownups having their, um, having their, uh, their drinks at the beach. 
and 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 positive associations with that you know so so when i was thinking about alcohol or trauma and abuse or any of this i was like mm, it doesn't land on me this is just my issue but i did have but i did have personal trauma related to um, growing up gay in the southeastern united states in the 70s and 80s i think it's traumatic for anybody and as i talk to other men and women who have um, this experience I think it's traumatic in general because society is not yet caught up. And by the way, we've come such a long way, but I think the last four years have really shown us uh, how much bigotry, hatred there is still for people. A lot of, a lot of wounds got stirred up by the LGBTQ community over the last four years, four or five years. Um, So, so there's two kind of pieces to how I think about trauma and abuse. And one of them is my own personal trauma related to my experience, even if my home life and my parents and my community and my Boy Scouts and church, I had no bad things happen. It was all great. Mm -hmm. But I had, I was carrying trauma being in um, society uh, that I, that I, you know, can talk more about. The second piece, and this is something I've really uncovered in the last couple of years, and it finally hit me hard in the spring and summer of this year with um, social justice and Black Lives Matters, mm-hmm. is transgenerational trauma related to being a descendant from families who own slaves. And when I got sober, I went and met with a shaman who talked to talked about the seventh generation concept. And he said, our people believe, um, I think he was Hopi. He said, our people believe that, but I think this is this is across indigenous and Native American and, and yeah. indigenous wisdom as a whole, that what we do seven generations back and seven generations forward is impacted. So what somebody did seven generations back, I'm still feeling. So he yeah. said, if our, if our um, community was driven out of our land, if we were massacred, if we were in wars, all that gets carried. And I think what this year showed me is that the trauma and abuse that Americans, whether your family was here or not, it's baked in our culture. And particularly if you know that you are part of that narrative and story of the founding of our country, which was a pride point for so long, but recognizing that if your own family um, was part of it, there is trauma and abuse related. And I have a couple of great examples I can share, but I'm going to pause with that because those are the two ways I frame my personal yeah. view on trauma and abuse in my life. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. I think that that's, um, and that's something that I, um, in my own life, I have found um, to be true as well. There, um, what ha- um, there's the personal stuff. You know, even stuff where you look back at your childhood and you think, God, it was great. Like I wasn't sexually abused. I wasn't, I didn't have an illness, all this kind of stuff. But then you start to look at it from a, well, okay, but I was living through generations of trauma. And I, as an intuitive empathic person, I'm picking up on that. Um, and, you know, had a, had a father who was ill and, and the trauma of all that, even though thinking it was normal at the time. So there's all of that stuff, you know, for you, it was um, having to um, exist as, as, a gay man in a place where that wasn't accepted. And I'm assuming having and a boy at that time, a child who wasn't even identifying with sexuality, but was really just aware yeah. that, you know, one of these kids, is not like the other. <laughs> and yeah. And just having to squash that a little bit, you know? And yeah. um, so there's that. And then there's also this concept of like generational ancestral 
trauma. Yeah. And I love that you've related that to, you know, the history of the United States, like, and just even being here in this space, you yeah. know, all these lands with all of the, all of the trauma that came with it. Um, right. We absorb that as, in, as intuitive beings. Um, and, and I, and I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I'm starting to see those kinds of patterns as well, you know, come out in my own life. Let's go back to, um, so much of what I say about and how I feel about intuition, and, and I say this um, in my book, and I say it to my clients, is that your intuition is the guiding light of your soul. Yeah. So it is your GPS. Like it, it, it keeps you on your path of alignment, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're tapped into our intuition, we're tapped into our divine self, we're on the path of alignment with our divine truth. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to your childhood with um, like as a boy growing up in the South Mm -hmm. and I'm assuming intuitively knowing um, Mm -hmm. what your truth was. Yeah. Yeah. Being in an environment that didn't support that truth. Yep. Right. Yeah. And then, so tell me how that, um, tell me how your intuition, um, if you can, uh, if if you can qualify how it showed up for you at that age, and then show, tell me how being in that environment that didn't support that affected your intuition. Yeah, I, um, you know, it's interesting. I was talking about this very topic with someone this week too. I mean, you know, I sort of believe that once you reached out to me, I was in ceremony with you already. So I think these <laughs> I've been thinking whether I realize it or not, these conversations have been popping up over the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, and so I had a knowing, I had a knowing and a truth that I was okay. And uh, I might cry while I'm talking because it's yeah. uh, it's beautiful. It's not it's a wound, but it's actually I feel very protective and and loving around the that little boy, because I had I knew that it was not me. I knew it was society and culture around me. Mm-hmm. And when things got when I could feel the pressure cooker, and it would be I don't know what it would tip it off. Maybe maybe I did something that was not traditionally masculine. And one of the little boys called me a girl or, you know, or worse as we got older um, because those words, you know, I got slung around a lot to insult. I mean, the worst thing you could be in, in those years, and maybe it's still true for boys growing up today, but I don't think it is here in the Bay area where my kids are growing up, but the worst thing you could be was a fag. And that was something that, you know, you just did everything. You constructed your entire being uh, to not be it. And you were either, you know, I've had this conversation with friends too. You could either pass for for straight, (laughs) kind of like I think a lot of people that are in minority or, or, um, you know, groups talk about the concept of passing. Or if you, um, if you couldn't pass, then, then that was just it. And in some ways, the, those who couldn't pass had a certain level of freedom and a certain level of abuse and torture and trauma too, right? Because yeah. in one way, they didn't have to do what I did, which was spend 28 years in pact with myself to never, ever, ever live that truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I held pretty tight to that. But I also knew that I was okay. And so there was sort of this dichotomy of that. And from an intuition standpoint, what I believe is whether it is my internal knowing, whether you want to call that higher power or God, spirit guides, angels, ancestors, it doesn't really matter. It was um, a a voice, a seed of knowledge or information, um, a knowing that I was implanted with at age three, four, five, that I was okay. And so when these situations would happen, I would go find somewhere to cry. 
and I would lock the door to the bathroom and turn the water on really loud. So the bath was, you know, and I'd get in the hot water tub and I would just start bawling and no one could hear me. Or I would go out into the backyard or we had woods behind us and I'd find a tree and I'd sit under a tree and cry. But that cathartic experience invited in the truth mm-hmm. and the truth would say, we got you. You're okay. Oftentimes I like to think that I today am mentoring that there's, you know, this is sort of a woo woo concept, but mm-hmm. that this conversation is the actual truth going into that little boy and healing him. Yeah. And so I sort of feel like there's this cyclical thing. Like every time as a grown up, I live and speak my truth. I feel like that's that healing. So yeah. I'm like sending it right back there to 1976 or whatever. Yeah. And I, okay. So there's two things or two, like some beautiful nuggets that you just shared. Um, the, the one about sending, and I, I've never thought of it that way. And it's so beautiful, but that the more you speak your truth today, you're actually sending it back in time to a, yeah. to a place, to a, an age at which you couldn't really truly speak your truth and you're healing, healing the past yeah. in the present. And if you look at quantum physics, they'll tell you that there is no past, present or future. It's all we, it's ex- all existing at the same time, and it's not something that I could even begin to try to understand, even though I've got a science mind. But um, so, as you're living in the present, is also how you're living in the past, is also how you're living in the future. Absolutely. And, and so it's just this, like, okay, so then just do the next best thing. Be be here now. Do the next best thing. Live in your truth in this moment, and then you're healing forward, backward, and all up and down and all around, right? hundred percent. And, and it, and it's what, you know, if you, if you lean into a more spiritual belief systems around generations and, and, and past lives and all that, you can go there and apply it there. If you don't, and you just think about what that does inside you to give you permission stepping forward. And, and I think every time, you know, and there's a, a million quotes on this, every time you live your truth, you give other people permission to live theirs. And I think so it's this conversation is going to give whoever hears it. Somebody's going to go, you just gave me some permission. I didn't have five seconds ago. That's the gift, right? That's the next. The, okay. So now there's three nuggets, right? Like you just dropped another one. Yeah. That's where I am now. Right. So my whole life I've been a healer and it's been, um, I've had the word healer filed in the wrong place. So it's been filed in the folder of self-sacrifice, martyrdom, pain, suffering, give everything up for everybody else. People, it's been, you know, and I've done really amazing things and all that kind of stuff. And now what I'm realizing is that the power of healing is really, truly the power of me just standing in my truth and being myself, because that gives other people permission to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that is just as powerful as healing. And that, that can be peace, joy, and love, right? Like it doesn't, healing can be that way. It doesn't have to be, you know, there's value to going and digging through the darkness. There is value to unearthing the shadows and there's value to um, really, really feeling, feeling the pain and moving through it. And you also like, we're here to create and we're here to be in a space of love and joy. And, and that is enough. That's enough. Like just being ourselves is enough. And actually just being ourselves is really, truly the only way that we, that we heal. A hundred percent. And this is really making me think about where we are in our country today. I think a lot of us who are um, white people, uh, white privileged people, maybe sometimes straight white privileged people. I think we're asking those of us who are awake awakening and want to do right and do well are asking ourselves, what can I do? What can mm-hmm. I do? And, and I think it's the conversations are brilliant and we need to be having them amongst ourselves, but it is really about the action too. 
and the and the and the truth telling is really part of that important healing piece. And so, as we were talking about this, I just was reminded of that shaman and talking about that sort of transgenerational trauma piece. And and when he talked about that, and I didn't think about it very much at all before this, but I, immediately I said to him, "Oh, in 1838, part of my family was massacred by the Miccosukee Indians in North Florida." And I went, "Oh." right. That was a thing, but that was only four generations ago. And he's like, yeah, you're traumatized by that. You're, but your family is carrying the pain and trauma of that. And I thought, but wait a minute. Well, we drove them off the land and they retaliated. How do I feel about, do I get to, do I get to be traumatized or do I, do I look back and go, well, my family was in the wrong anyway. So, you know, it doesn't matter. Trauma is trauma. You know, it doesn't matter. And so, um, I've thought a lot in recent years about that. And um, maybe 10 years ago, I was at the um, uh, at an event up here in Northern California where there were the 13 indigenous grandmothers up on the stage, uh, Pioneers Conference. And one of the, uh, uh, the micro, after their talk, the, um, a guy in the audience stood up and grabbed the mic. He was a Caucasian man and he said, I'm from Wyoming. And he's, or maybe it was North Dakota. Anyway, he said, my um, family took land from the Lakota. And he said, I want to speak to the Lakota grandmother. And he started, and I'll get tearful talking about it because he started crying. And he said, what can I, he said, my family, I have the land grant. I can see right here where we were given permission to go drive the Lakota off of our land and probably kill them in the process and, mm-hmm. and, and drive them off. And um, and he said, what can I do to, to make retribute, you know, retribution or what can I do to, to heal this and all that. And the grandmother stood up and said, you just did it. Mm -hmm. Just did it. That's the thing. And I think that's the piece around living intuition into truth is he knew to stand up and to ask the question. And, and that, and every one of us in the room, I mean, I immediately thought of my family in Florida. I was like, we all, when you start telling the stories and admitting and being conscious about your own experience past, present, future, you are, you're doing the healing. Yeah. Oh, it's so powerful. I love that image of the grandmothers on the stage. You know, in my shamanic practice, um, the, the grandmothers are very powerful. Like the, they, they show up on mass, you know, and, yeah. um, a and wonderful documentary that you can watch about them that, um, I interviewed a woman, Carol Hart, who was part of the production of it. And- oh, wow. Yeah. I'd love to, yeah, I will hook up after, after this. I, I also, Lewis, the, the, the other, the third nugget, um, that you dropped kind of a few minutes ago was this image of, um, you said that your intuition always told you that you were okay. Yeah. Um, but then, but then the external world would tell you that you weren't. Yep. And so there's this friction that happens mm-hmm. and, and then you would go and sit in the bathtub and turn on the water and cry or, or go to sit out in the woods by a tree and cry mm-hmm. um, and just have this physical, emotional release, but that you always knew that on the other side of that, that you were okay. Yeah. And this, this is something again, that has come up a lot for me. And of course we're talking about in this conversation, it's when you start to walk this spiritual path, you know, a path, which, and and really, honestly, what's a spiritual path? It's not following a guru. It could be. Um, But for me, when I say a spiritual path, it's really tuning into yourself as a part of a greater, a greater, a greater energy source. When you really start walking the spiritual path, um, you start to learn that these moments of facing massive fear and emotional upheaval 
um, are necessary to have the aha on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And just because, I mean, how many times have I sat here and had this emotional, I don't want to say breakdown, but breakthrough, right? Like Brene Brown would cross it out and say, you know, break down, cross it out and say breakthrough. Um, This emotional breakthrough that just has a lot of tears and anxiety and fear-based stuff only to have this beautiful aha moment on the other side and think, oh, I've made it. That's it. That's the last one, right? And then it happens again. And you're like, what the hell? Like, I just healed all this stuff. Like, what's happening? And it happens again. And then there's another aha moment. So for me, this spiritual path has been, okay, so that's it, though. Like, now I know when those those heavy feelings come on that I have to embrace them and move through them. And that I know that they're there because on the other side is a breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah, Speak to me about that in your life. Like I, it started like you had, it's interesting because you had a real awareness around that as a child. And I think that's super interesting. I don't think most kids have that kind of awareness that on the other side, everything's going to be okay. So how, tell me how that shows up in your life now. You know, it's interesting because as I was telling you that, and then I told you about the pact I made with myself to never act on my truth. um, It makes me think about one of the things I started to observe, even as a child, um, and, and I know it happens with girls too, but it happens with boys where you come back after fifth grade or sixth grade or something and boys go from being boy, little great, cool, fun little boys. And they go into this like pre-man thing yeah. and, they get and they get difficult and they get, and they, and they're cool and whatever. And um, that's what society does to them, you know? So I think, you know, whole other topic is around how different cultures, whether it's Native American or whatever, do help with that transition for boys, because there's a real trauma in boys in America and probably globally, but I think we're really bad about it related to that transition from getting to be that soft, squishy, loving, you know? And so with my own son, I can see it already coming just because he's, he's influenced by YouTube videos on Minecraft games and, you know, like whatever we're, you know, and we, you, you can't filter out the world, you know, the world's yeah. going to get in. And so that shift. So why I bring that up is because I think my own experience of that tension was that I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And then I forgot it. Mm. I forgot it because what I was supposed to be in my culture and my school and my family and my society you know, I always refer to it as sort of the script you get handed at birth. Like this yeah. is your parents. Like this is don't worry, don't work too hard. This is who you are. Not yeah. everybody gets those, um, maybe, but I I did, and I think a lot of people in in um, in families that you know, like you're expected to go to a certain kind of school. You're expected to apply yourself in a certain way. You're expected to have a spiritual practice based on the faith that we believe in. You're expected, you know, to marry a certain type of person and 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 perpetuate a caste basically. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, although that's a whole other topic too, Um, but it is to perpetuate your cast, right? And so so everybody's got these sort of expectations based on a script that you don't even know you're necessarily being applied. Well, the script and then the cast narrative got so large. And of course, as you know, I was heading off to Washington Lee in a couple of years. So it was like, I needed to right size myself to fit and that's where, you know, making a pact with myself to just never experience my truth um, stuck until it was safe to not until the late 90s when television and media from Ellen DeGeneres to Will and Grace to just working out in the world and going and going to Emory Business School where so many people from the Northeast were like, like, we don't give a, we don't care, like whatever, you know, and all of a sudden culture was shifted and it was safe to consider 
living and speaking your truth. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so for, for me, I think that that conflict um, continues to be really real because, you know, as you were describing it, it's also you get a daily reprieve from all that baggage. And I think it's a practice that we have to put in place uh, for our lives to because you'll have fears reemerge all the time, even when you've done the work. Mm-hmm. But breaking through those difficult times helps you get through it. So the second piece that I'll add into answering your question is around addiction and sobriety. Um, my two greatest gifts as a human are the two flawed, quote unquote, aspects of me. The two imperfect parts of me are what make me actually, I think, valuable and meaning. I mean, well, lots of things make me valuable and meaningful, but yeah. they give me my great gifts that make me able to do the work that I do, which is that I have an empathy and compassion for those that are not like me. Mm-hmm. I have empathy and compassion for those who struggle. I have empathy and compassion for things I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I apply a daily practice of just seeking to understand rather than to be understood. That's the St. Francis prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so why I, I'm interesting to say why you consider those flaws. Oh yeah. Yeah. Society I, I, them flaws. I mean, these, those are my shame points when you go back to please don't tell people you're gay and you're an alcoholic, you know, <laughs> Lewis, please don't tell people, you know, that's the voice you get from your family of origin or your culture of origin or whatever. Right. And I am over here screaming, screaming, Lewis, please tell people you're gay and you're an alcoholic because that (laughs) makes you real. Oh my God. You know, it makes you so real and having empathy and compassion and, 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 um, and this, this desire to seek understanding in other people that makes you real. Yeah. No, well, hundred percent. And I know that now. And and I think even, you know, I moved out to the West coast nine years ago to, to have kids and to build this great career. And I, and I, I live in a bubble and it's very different from a lot of the parts of the country. It's different from a lot of where you are. It's different from where I grew up. It's different yeah. from even parts of Atlanta, uh, you know, where, where uh, I lived for 20 years after school. Um, but what I know is that there is a, there is a rapidly evolving and, and changing world that looks at, you know, a holistic approach to evaluating a human, not from the standpoint of like pushing shame. And there's a much more compassionate yeah. approach to, to it. So what I would say is um, they are, they are my greatest gifts because they have taught me that. And I don't view them as flaws, but I view them as, like I said, gifts but I can somewhat kind of like put them in the quote, you know, the air quotes around them as flaws because um, it's like, I reclaim them as my, as my, uh, I don't know, superpowers. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it's, it's interesting that, that I love that, that you call them flaws and you're also calling them gifts because one of the things that I've been so fascinated with is just the power of language and how we language um, and the language that we use um, around our story um, yeah. And um, so consi- what I want to offer you is to consider that they've always been gifts. Yes. And that they yeah. were threatening to some people and those people made you think they were flaws. A hundred percent. And I think that that lands on the narrative now as we start to look at all human lives and all qualities and all aspects of all human lives bearing gifts, even the things we may have collectively said, we don't want that, or that isn't what, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you said that, I'm reminded of a thing that either I've heard or said, or it's said a bunch, which is your pain. Uh, you know, if you want to find your gifts, you know, go into your pain, yeah. that's where they are. And usually, um, 
you know, if you want to know what your purpose or mission is, uh, ask yourself, what have I not yet told? What, what's the truth I haven't yet explored? What am I afraid of? You know, because that generally is the pathway to finding what you're here to do. Okay. So then what is that for you then? Like, what have you not yet explored? Like, where's your truth? Like- yeah. Well, at the largest level, it's healing, right? So, I mean, I think we're all here to heal, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and some I might say, well, wait a minute, what does that exactly mean? But, you know, uh, the reality is love to love and be loved, you know? Um, but I think at the end of the day that um, the problems that we have as a global society and the impacts that we have on the planet are all symptomatic of scarcity thinking mm-hmm. and this idea that there's not enough to go around. Yes. And the reality is that's actually a big false narrative, mm-hmm. but the way we have designed the way we live on the world, not only from who we allow in the boardroom, the classroom, the workplace, the church, you know, to um, what we build our products out of, it's all wrong. We've done it in the wrong way. We have um, used our resources improperly and Hey, no shame and blame. Not going to do that because, you know, we did the best we knew at the time we knew, particularly around the environmental stuff. We can talk about the societal social impact stuff, too. That's pretty can get pretty dark. But when I look at how we make things, nobody was really setting out to say, let's crash the planet. But Mm -hmm. um, but we set up systems that were not sustainable. And as we let capitalism run rampant and uh, Mm -hmm. the size of the world population is growing and all that, then, you know, we got we got a problem. We have to fix it. So um, anyway, I got I went off on a tangent there, but <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. What's the question again? <laughs> the question. Well, the question was the question was um, when you're you said yeah. when you're trying to find your purpose in the world, yeah. you look into your pain. So yeah. what is so then? If no, I'm asking like you that question, what is your pain, and can you find your and have you found your purpose in it? Yeah, and, and that's where I was headed. You're right. So the environmental work for me is the healing work that I'm here to do. I, I didn't think that when I first got a job doing sustainability environmental, I was like, I hope they don't find out that I'm not really an environmentalist. But you know, when I started to dig into it, it was really around mindfulness and it was around intelligence. It's around mindful resourcing and it's around systems design. And it was like really interesting things. And then it was like, you know, I grew up canoeing on on North Florida rivers and and spending half my time down at the beach in the summer at, at our beach cottage. And um, Boy Scout camping and all that. And I thought, you know, like, I do love the planet. I do love nature. And and also recognize how critical nature is also for healing. Like, you know, yeah. if you find yourself in a, in a stump, go out and walk in, walk in nature for half an hour and you're going to shift the way you feel. So then so, is, your, is your pain in that then at some point you were separated from nature and that was the pain? And then, and so the healing and the well, purpose comes in, re, in reconnecting to it. And this is how you've turned it into purpose? Yeah, that's an interesting point, because I think the connection that I was going to make, why did I choose that topic as opposed to any form of healing? Because I think that what I recognized was that healing others and individuals was important. Um, I'm on my path towards doing more social work. And that's what I also know. When I was a little boy, somebody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And based on whatever I heard or known out in the world, I said I wanted to be a medical missionary. And when when I was reminded of that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, and, and probably when I went to business school and told them I wanted to help corporations find their soul, <laughs> it's oh, wow. kind of a little hubris in there, but that's what I, that's what I want to do. Help companies find their soul. Um, I, I think, you know, I started to think about, you know, 
what did that mean when I said I wanted to be a medical missionary? And for me, it was, I want to help people. I want to heal people. And I want to carry some spiritual practice associated with it. Yeah. And do it around the world, by the way, because I think there was a big part that was like, I want to go into places in the world where we're treating humans the worst. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you don't, if you all don't realize it, you know, slavery is alive and rampant on our planet. We just call it something different. Uh, yeah. under labor and migrant workers and other yes. forms of this. Um, so the point being is I think that my work in this textile apparel industry and any product production where we've pushed it off into developing our countries or, or third world or marginalized communities where we make them make our stuff and we make them sit in sweatshops with no food and water for 20 hours and they can yeah. only sleep on a pile of textiles. That's my work. And that is healing mm-hmm. at that level. Yeah, Absolutely. That's one of them. That's one of them. And the other, the other ones you said, like, what's next? Like, where do you go next? This is a great conversation because I'm, I'm actually vocalizing some of these things with you around, around my truth. And for the first time (laughs) I say it to friends, but I don't necessarily go public. Uh, And I think there's more that, um, you know, in the spirit of giving permission, living your truth and giving your permission to others, Mm -hmm. me, it's about leaning even more and more and more into honesty and we're asked so much to couch the way we say things, be polite about the way we say things, half measure things. And I think one of the things I've realized this year with social justice issues in our country related to people of color, um, how much I was complacent, even though I thought I was on the right side because I wasn't sh- changing my actions. Yeah. You know, my intentions yeah. were good. Yeah. I think I'm a racist, but my actions were supporting racist ideology. Yeah. And I I think that is, that is, so back to what you said earlier about breaking the cycles of abuse, um, no, no shame or blame to our families, but a lot of us were just given a narrative of white supremacy at various levels, whether we call it probably didn't call it that. And in my family, we were polite society. So we, we did not like racism. We didn't think, but we were supporting a certain ideology. I get to break that with my children and that big, big thing. So I think my big gift is what they'll do because we talk about it differently. We talk about all this differently than the way I was talked to told. And and we talked about it growing up. Yeah. Well, and so as you're describing all these things that you're really passionate about what I'm seeing in it, if we're going to turn, if we're going to find your passion and your pain, it's really going back to that little boy, you know, curled up underneath a tree crying who hasn't, who has, um, who nobody's standing up for. Right. So, so you've learned how to stand up for yourself now and to speak your truth and, and to follow your intuition and to trust it. And so now you're turning the pain of those early years into the passion of, okay, I've learned how to do this myself and I'm going to do it for other people in a way that feels really good. Like to to the factory workers who, who don't have any rights to, um, you know, to the, uh, marginalized, um, you know, societies yeah. of the world. Um, yeah. And so, I, well, and I want to say something in here too, because you don't have to be, and it's back to that whole concept of trauma, abuse, or, you know, you don't have to be like the dramatic story to actually have this all relevant to you. And so for people who are listening to this, like I had advocates, I had great advocates. My mom was the best advocate. If something was going down at the school, she that wasn't good for it. She was in the principal's office going, wait just one minute. You know, I had parents super involved in church and school and scouts and everything. 
I had so many great advocates, but these, but the pieces of my hidden truth, nobody could advocate for because I wasn't allowed to speak them. Yeah. And I think as we're raising children, and you may have an audience that that has that, or if you don't, but as you look at the way you influence others, um, how are we advocating for other human beings? How mm-hmm. are we not just, you know, and if we see it, we ought to ask ourselves the question, can I better advocate for this person? Yeah. You know, and that happens in the conference room, that happens in the Zoom call, that happens in the, you know, the workplace, down the street, the grocery store, you know, and with your children. How, yeah. how am I not best advocating for someone else? Because yeah. and I'll say this last thing, I was reading a bunch about the Dr. Seuss books this week and, and thinking, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, what's the big deal? So there's so the a picture drew, drawn in 19 whatever that shows a person of color in a loincloth with a spear. Why is that harmful or hurtful, you know? And it's like, we need to stop and we need to put ourselves in the place of where these microaggressions of harm and hurt exist and ask what that might be like if we were the one targeted with that kind of thing, you know? And, yeah. and is this the kind of stuff we, we want and need to pass forward? So advocacy looks like, saying, I see it. I'm not going to be complacent and quiet. I'm going to get curious and interested. I might not yet understand it, yeah. but I'm going to try to find out. I'm going to speak to a person that this might insult or offend, and I'm going to learn from them. Yeah. So tell me, help me. Oftentimes, maybe we just need to do that work ourselves. But I think that's what a big piece of back to the original question is um, my gifts from my pain is advocating for myself and dot, dot, dot others. Others, Yes. Oh, I love that. You know, <laughs> and I, I want to show, so when you're talking about um, approaching people um, who are um, like people who are marginalized or caught up in, um, you know, institutionalized slavery or whatever, and you're talking about advocating for them or getting to know their, their side of the story. Um, you know, you and I sit in a, in a place of a lot of white privilege, mm-hmm. um, a lot of, of it. And so um, it is sometimes hard to see ourselves in that light. Um, And I think back, so my experience, you know, this was all kind of churned up for you. You said during the Black Lives Matter movement of the summer of 20, spring and summer of 2020. And, and I remember, you know, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, where Breonna Taylor um, was killed. And so it was a hotbed here. And it was just really heartbreaking um, when all that, when all that first um, came out. And I remember, um, walking out my front door um, and there was a, um, an internet cable guy across the street getting ready to do work. And, um, and I, I was taking my dog for a walk and I passed him on the way out. And on the way back, he was sitting in his car. And um, literally this was like the night after all of the protests started. So everything was like super, super, you know, a lot of tension. And I looked at him sitting there in the car and my heart was just breaking so much. And I, and I went and I, I asked him to roll down the window and he said, can I help you? I said, hey, I said, my name's Peyton. And I said, I just, I just want to ask you, um, how can I support you? And he started bawling. And he said, he got out of the car and he said, and then I started crying. And he said, just by doing that, yeah. that's, how you, that's how you support me. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, you know, I, I really wanted to be, there's a, I have a point in saying this, that I really wanted to be on the front lines. You know, I wanted to be the persons down in the street marching with the signs. And intuitively, I knew that that was not my space. Like my, my space was, was better used and my energy was better used elsewhere. Um, 
but being able to make that just that one connection um, yeah. was really powerful and it changed me and, yeah. uh, and hopefully changed him a little bit too. So I'm offering this up because I feel like, like you're this powerhouse of like um, of taking charge and really going out and making a difference in a really big, profound way. Um, like really taking big action um, on behalf of the voices of the downtrodden. Um, and um, sometimes just being curious, and you said this about getting to know somebody who's not yeah. like you, um, even that can just change you enough that then it has a ripple effect down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because my role is not always, not necessarily hands-on, uh, although I do do volunteer work and things that are hands-on. My role is sort of at this, um, which, which I, you know, this sounds a little bit self-important and I don't mean it that way, but it is sort of at the highest level of like pulling the levers, you know, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I think some of us are sort of like, how can I shine light? How can I bring attention? How can I bring agency to this work? Mm-hmm. So it's at that level where I can pipeline something into a corporation that I work with, yeah. <laughs> get a funder or an investor to see it. Yeah. I can um, put it on a documentary, which I'm working on right now. And, and mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a beautiful woman named Nazreen who was a child laborer, child slavery laborer, who we are featuring in this docuseries we're doing um, on uh, the future of the fashion industry is told through the next generation of, of innovators and solution providers. And she got out and she now uh, has started a women's, um, a women's um, textile working group uh, to produce, you know, a, a cut and sew and, and facility in Kathmandu that is all just, and, you know, it's women owned, women run, you know, with, uh, you know, all the things that she had to suffer. Like I mentioned earlier, the 20 hours with no food and water in a room with no windows, you know, as a child mm-hmm. stitching and, and making garments that, you know, she's changing that. And, and so, um, yeah. And so I think a lot about my great, what, where, where God wants me, um, the God of my understanding, um, wants me in the role of bringing as much light access resources and agency to as many people as I can. Yeah. That's action. Period. Whether yeah. you're, whether you're at the top pulling oh, the yeah. or whether you're at the bottom yeah. marching on the streets, it doesn't yeah. matter. That's action because so not, it's needed yeah. everywhere. It's needed yeah. everywhere. Right. Yeah, if everybody's yeah. out marching, the sh- marching on the streets and nobody's pulling the levers, then nothing happens. You know, we need right. it across across yeah. well we have to create we have to create the demand uh and so and demand comes from um creating pipelines of um resources and and, and uh, opening up gates yeah. so that's that's the world i live in i'm in the opening the doors world yeah I love uh, but it. what's great about it is you know it's so funny as a child you know you think you're going to be out there as a medical missionary working in a village in in sri lanka and you know that, that maybe that's not it but you're but you're impacting people in sri lanka right Right. Well, and then that's, and then coming back, you know, to the intuitive piece, it's like, if you're following your heart and you're following, um, and your truth and you're following your intuition and that, and that everywhere you go, so you can be, then you can be a healer anywhere you go. You can be, um, a healer and an intuitive accountant. You can be a healer and an intuitive, um, you know, CEO, you can be a a healer and an intuitive janitor. It doesn't matter, you know? So um, well, and at the end of the day, it is just that in these in these simple and kind acts that like the one you described um, uh, of the man um, 
you know, that, that, that is, that is tremendous and remarkable. And, you know, there was a little song for those of you who went to Sunday school, there was a little song we used to sing about the magic penny, hold it tight and you won't have any lend it, spend it. And you'll have so many they'll roll all over the floor. Mm-hmm. I get choked out. Cause it's just like, I think about that it was my favorite song in Sunday school. And I think my whole life, that's what I've been doing. And when you, when you, um, you know, your truth and your, and your kindness and your love, is the magic pennies that you're that you're throwing out all over the world. Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that song up because, you know, in the reading I did for you, um, your grandfather showed up and he laid pennies. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know that, but you're saying. Holy you're about, cow. You're talking about. So that's what that meant then. What? Yeah, that's pretty. That's OK. Holy cow. I'm so glad you see, I, I heard, and it didn't land until it landed. That's, 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 great. The, that's the beauty of, of these readings, right? That's so that's awesome. Okay. So the last thing that I want to ask um, Lewis to wrap this up. Um, one of the other things that showed up in my reading for you when your grandfather came through, he showed me an image of you um, um, in a rocking chair type thing with your, with your son as a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, whether this happened or not, the image that I was shown was that as you're sitting here holding this baby, this newborn in your hands, you're thinking of all the ways um, you're going to be a father. Like this, this fatherhood thing comes in for you really strong and almost in an overwhelming way. And your grandfather showed me this to say, he's there with you, supporting you um, as you walk through fatherhood. Yeah. What I want to ask you now is kind of the last question to wrap this up is, how are you going to um, teach your children? And, and do you have two sons or a son and a daughter? A son and a daughter. So, so your children, and maybe even more specifically your son. Um, how how do you how how do you plan as a father to keep them tuned in to their own truth, to their own intuition? Like how are you, how do you do that? Like do you have a, do you have a plan or? I'm sure you've thought about it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, yes. And, and um, when you told me that, that story from the reading, when you told me that image, you know, what, what came to me was not a moment where I was fearful that I wouldn't be a good dad, but, but a point in early, his early childhood where my fatherhood uh, came into question in the sense of, you know, what will I what role will I play in his life? What can I do for him? What what, what will what will that relationship look like? And, and you know, so I think I always knew because I had a good role model as my own father and my grandfather, the one we were talking about. Uh, I have some really great role models there, um, and my love of kids and all that. So so it was really around sort of how what is what is my job with this child? So when you told me that, I was like, yeah, I do question it. I think I thought more. I think five or six years ago when he was an infant and toddler, a baby, I was more, he's seven now. So, you know, seven years ago, six years ago, I um, thought I had it all figured out. And the older he's getting, the more I'm questioning what, how I can do this. It's, you know, as my friend, my good friend, Stephanie says, little children, little problems, big children, bigger problems. <laughs> I to see that at seven already. I'm like, oh, the problems are getting a little bigger. Yeah. Um, so the way that I want to do that with him is through living my truth and being pretty vocal with him about it mm-hmm. and telling him we had a conversation about race in the car the other day because we were listening to um, 
how we were listening to Jamaican music. And then of course I went into this whole long story about Jamaica and then the Dominican Republic and Haiti and the composition of the people there and the story of how they got there. And, you know, and Jamaican Americans and, you know, all of a sudden, like, he's like, all I wanted to do was talk about music dad. And now you're giving me this like racial history (laughs) and the sins of our past and all this stuff like that. But, you know, I think, you know, our values are handed down because our parents talk about what our values are. Right. And so, Um, I'm, I'm shifting a story around values that is a much more inclusive story that moves yeah. beyond the own culture and community and caste that I was raised in into mm-hmm. one that is larger. So I think my plan is to just keep sharing and showing up that way. Yeah. Um, we're doing some volunteer work this weekend. Um, my parents did that with us. You know, these are ways that you sort of pass those values forward. Yeah. And I hope all that, that that and me vocalizing it gives him permission to know that he can lean into his own truth and live his truth. Yeah. And, and his mom and, and, and his other mom, <laughs> Joe and Leah, I think they also know very strongly uh, the same. And I think they really yeah. empower, empower these kids to be living out, you know, their truth. Cause we've all gone through that. That's, that's one of the beauty of, of people that whether you're, you know, came out of the closet or you went into recovery or whatever, we learn how to get real with our truth because we yeah. have survival. Yeah. You have to, because the other side of it is not survival. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we're born connected to our truth and then life happens and society happens and adults happen around us. Yeah. And we, and we, and we mold ourselves to fit into a certain place for survival. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it, you know, I'm always curious about, well, how do you keep kids in touch with their intuition? Because they're profoundly intuitive. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially little boys, because they, at some point, like, just like you said, at some point they go from being squishy to having to be, you yeah. know, having to have this false bravado. So how do you keep that squishiness, you know, that softness, yeah. that, um, that tenderness, you know, with them. And I think it's just by, like you said, it's just like living by example. Well, and he, he will get to, and does know about my, my gifts slash superpowers formerly known as laws. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the greatest permission we give. And I think my parents gave it to me too, when I would bring home a grade that wasn't as good as it could be or whatever. They told me, you know what, we didn't get a, always get a straight A. And, you know, if you need a tutor, we can apply, you know, we can think about applying some extra help to this work. And, but it, but it was, I was, I was, I had some permission to be imperfect. Like, I don't think I'm a professional perfectionist based on, you know, being told to be perfect in a certain way, like a lot of people might be. Um, But there was, you know, there were expectations. And I think, I think part of uh, the great gift that we can give to our kids too, and and to anybody, anybody out in there is to let them see our imperfections, because that's a huge gift. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And vocalize it and go, by the way, you're allowed to. And then on the intuition side, um, I think for him in particular, um, as he gets older, you know, really helping him understand what having a practice around, you know, intuition yeah. and gut yeah. and all that is. I love it. Or I think I feel like I have more work to do in this space. I'm glad you posed this. Now I'm going to think more about it. Yeah, we always do. Like there's like, just like I was telling you, um, you know, off camera, you know, when I was in doing heart surgery, um, every day in the operating room was a new day. And right when you get confident and think that you know it all, all of a sudden something hits you out of the blue and you have no idea what's going on. And so I finally just said, well, you know, if you if it hasn't happened to you yet, then you haven't been doing it long enough, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same with intuition. If you haven't experienced this yet, well, then you just haven't been doing it long enough kind yeah. of thing. There's always something new. And so it's just a practice, not a perfection. That's the way that I that I look at it. But um well, this is an opportunity now, Lewis, if there's anything that you'd like to share with the audience, um, you know, 
before yeah. we sign off. Yeah. I do, you know, I do. I was, I was um, thinking about that before and I did a little meditation prayer beforehand and I have these wonderful books that I reference. My one that I want to share is the book of awakening by Mark Nepo. If you mm-hmm. don't know it, it's a day by day and they are beautiful and brilliant. And they have meditations at the end. They're only a page long usually. Yeah. Uh, and, and so today's was really great, but it didn't inspire. I wasn't called to share that one. What I wanted to share was this quote. Well, two things. One, right before we got on, a friend, actually someone who was a fraternity brother at Washington and Lee, posted on his site, if you want to know who your tribe is, speak your truth and see who sticks around. Yes. <laughs> How weird. Literally two minutes before I hopped on with you, that popped up in my Facebook feed. So I felt like that was being delivered to us Super for a reason. Important. Yeah. Absolutely. And the second one is this um, Goethe or Sir, Hil- Sir Edmund Hillary. It's attributed to both because I think both parts of the quote have been ma- mashed up over time. Mm-hmm. But it's, I'll read it to you all. And many of you will say, oh, yes, I know this one. And for some, it may be the first time you hear it. So enjoy. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always in effectiveness, concerning all acts of initiative and creation. There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment when one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves in. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidences, incidents, and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. Oh, I love that. That speaks to me in so many different areas of my life right now. And it's so true. And, and, And again, going back to connect to the beginning, it's, I think that we, have learned to live in this lack culture, right? This, this scarcity, scarcity mindset. And in actuality, abundance is literally all around. And, and it also requires that we make a decision and we just say, you know what, this is the next best step. It feels in alignment and I'm going to commit to it yep. and, and go for that, it. That's the phrase of this that I keep in my head. The, the minute one commits, mm-hmm. providence moves in. And, and it made me, you know, when I first heard it, and then again, this week, I was like, I remind myself of the definition of providence. What does providence really mean? And it, it really is that spiritual God guidance. And however yeah. you define it, whatever that, like, oh my gosh, I heard this thing and then 20 coincidences happen the next week. Whatever you call it, that's providence moving in. And sometimes providence isn't always pretty. Um, you know, in, in the shamanic practice, um, it's called initiation. So when you make a commitment to do the work, either you sign up for a workshop or you sign up for um, like a two-year program or you, you, you just make an appointment to go and see a shaman, the minute that you pay the money and say, say you're going to do it, things start happening. And it could, wow. mean, it could mean that your world apparently turns upside down, but yeah. that's providence because it's clearing everything out of your way so that you can yeah. get where you need to go. So. Absolutely. The minute, the minute you decide to leave a bad relationship, the minute you decide to get sober, the minute you decide to leave your job, it's not pretty at first because <laughs> you, you, you move into the hard stuff. Yeah. You move into the hard stuff, but the hard stuff is, you know, again, here we go on the other side of that hard stuff is the, is the aha. Uh-huh. 
you know? And I will always, my experience of those moments of truth where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I have to, I have to confess. I have to admit, I have to come clean. Um, the moment I do it, the minute that I commit, like it gets, I can feel, even though it gets hard, mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, it's like jumping off the roller coaster. You know, it, to me, my experience has been, okay, let's organize it. Like great analogy is if you've ever messed up your finances and then you're like, oh my God, this is a mess. And then you're like, just make up a spreadsheet put a budget mm-hmm. together bit by bit, right. pay that credit card, you know, it's all, it's all okay. Yep. Put this in a savings account. It's going to be fine. And then you wake up a couple months down the road and you're like, well, dang, look at me. Look at how, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's not fun to look at truth at first. Cause it's gnarly. You're like, Oh, I can't believe I'd charge that on the credit card. What a mistake. Yep. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lewis, this has just been a great pleasure. How can people, um, do, would you like people to get in touch with you or would you like to direct them to your website and, and see what you're up to these days? Absolutely. I absolutely, you can go to, you know, I'm going to just like, yeah, just it. tell me and I'll put it yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. There's a couple, a couple key resources I'll give. And then, um, one is that you can go to our website. If you want to learn about the organization that I run, it's called the apparel impact Institute and mm-hmm. it's apparelimpact.org. Secondly, I have a podcast where I talk to people in the fashion industry that inspire me. These are friends, mentors, leaders that um, it's called Lewis and Friends. And that is on YouTube. And you can go to YouTube and search for Lewis and Friends or ping me. Uh, You can send me an email at Lewis, L-E-W-I-S at LewisPerkins.com. And then the last thing I'll say, I have all these resources. The last thing I'll say is that this documentary that we're, that we're producing that I talked about before and developing has, has the pilot ready. We're going to do a screening soon. If you oh, want wow. to know more about that, it's called Generation F, but the website is Gen F Series, so G-E-N-F-Series.com. And you can go on there and watch the trailer, uh, sign up for the list, and then we'll we'll get you in the screening. That's awesome. Yay. Well, I'm going to do that. I'd love to be in the screening. That sounds awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, Lewis, thanks so much for showing up today. Again, my name is Peyton Turner. This is my good friend, Lewis Perkins, and we are both into it. Thanks, Peyton. <laughs>